lots and lots of spoilers. Hello, children. Hello. Here's today's story. Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Once upon a time, long, long ago, there was a time when a man who used to work with a chimpanzee was king of the land of America. Uh At the same time, a princess named Diana married a man with enormous ears and no real job. While all this was happening, a silly man named Terry Gilliam decided to make a magical fantasy movie with a little boy and a bunch of little people and Robin Hood and a noble knight named Sir Ralph of Richardson and they would all have wonderful, confusing adventures that might or might not have happened. And they all lived happily ever after except for Mr. Napoleon and all the people on the Titanic who drowned. The End Did I oversimplify it all? Of course I did, because that's what we do here at Max Mike Movies, where we're trying to condense an entire year of film into a few episodes with our series, That Sure Was 1981. Guess what year we're doing? Uh, 1969. Close enough. (laughs) And this week we're blither-blathering about Terry Gilliam's children's story, Time Bandits. (laughs) I'm your host, the one with the problem that requires fruit, Max Levine. (laughs) And over there, sprawled on some giant stone Lego blocks, is that hunk of concentrated evil that's going to turn us all into hermit crabs, Mike Luce. See, I thought you were going to say, and here's the fruit. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Two two on the nose. Yeah, Lego blocks for the win. Before we get into this movie and its trivia and other things, we have our poll question. We do! We do. Speaking of fruit, what second banana, sidekick, or lesser character do you wish got their own film? We got a bunch of very unusual answers. Cool. From Dave Mackman, Eddie from To Have or Have Not. <laughs> Was you ever bit by a dead bee? <laughs> I don't know exactly how interesting a story that would be. It's mostly, uh, get up, wake up, get drunk. Yeah, but. Yeah. Could be. Or maybe Treebeard from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, story following the ends, sure. Oh, dear. But how many films would it be? It would be, yeah, the dialogue <laughs> would be a tad slow, I think. Uh, the first 20 minutes is just a hum-hum. We're just warming from, up, folks. From uh, Dr. Professor Rebecca Pelkey. Tonto, of course, but made by indigenous people. I was going to say, avoiding Johnny Depp, I assume. I... From Tonto's perspective in which he teaches the Lone Ranger to speak his native language. I try to avoid Downing Depp whenever possible. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Richard Tatum offers Mouse from Devil in a Blue Dress. I don't know that one. I don't either, but thank you for answering. (laughs) I like this. Aaron Perez, he just puts one word, and we immediately know what he's talking about. Lando. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. We all know right away. People will always want Lando, and they'll pay through the nose to get it. (laughs) I think that's how that goes. Uh, Jamie Kleinert gave us quite a list. Oh, dear. Yeah. Inigo Montoya. Sure. Mad Mardigan. Oh, yeah. Irene Adler. Who? Uh, the, the the woman from Sherlock Holmes. Oh. Eowyn. Mm. Gimli. Yeah, specifically stories of Moria and the Glittering Caves. Oh, mm. that'd be cool. Blue Wizards of Middle Earth. Yeah. They're the sad you ones. Know, the, the two blues. <laughs> We don't even get names. Morgoth. Oh, God. I don't think, no. 
That's not the second <laughs> banana. That's a that's an antagonist. Wash from uh, Firefly, Shepherd Book. Yeah, Shepherd Book we really needed to know more about. <laughs> Frau Farbisna from Austin Powers. <laughs> Father Vito Cornelius. Oh, oh Cornelius. <laughs> and Maximilian Effen Smeckler. Who? I don't know. Oh. Well, still, cool list. Yep, very nice. Uh, Charles Forthite said, I was going to suggest some character who nobody remembers, like Cassie and Andor from Star Wars Rogue One, and everyone would go, who? Except they're actually doing a spinoff based on Cassie and Andor from Star Wars Rogue One. Ooh. Sorry, Charles, they beat you to it. I think he's a big trade negotiator. <laughs> <laughs> I hear he's a champion on the pod racing circuit. Uh, Tyler, Tyler Sturt says, Etta Candy from Wonder Woman. Actually, I wanted Etta and Diana to have adventures in the 1920s before retiring to Themyscira till World War II. Huh. That would have been cool, especially the way she was played in the movie. Etta was much more interesting. Valerie, no, I'm not related to one of the host coons, <laughs> says, Sala from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes, John Rhys-Davies. Yeah, we can actually find out where he's really supposed to be from. <laughs> the fairy godmother in Cinderella. I always wondered about that. The, and the couple in Strictly Ballroom who wanted to learn the Bogo Pogo. <laughs> uh, okay. You ball I, change been, on the four. <laughs> I, I never really wanted to know more about them, but they, there could be a story there. You know, I do a pretty mean Bogo Pogo if you... Uh, you don't even know what it is. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and our, our wise ass from the North, Vince. Ah, uh, Vince. Writes, a sidekick who needs his own movie? Why, Bumpy the Wonder Horse, of course. <laughs> of course he does. Yay, Bumpy. Vince, that's, go that's going to cost you 5,000 Bumpy bucks. <laughs> but I'm going to give you 10. <laughs> so that was our last week's. Thank you so much for all these really cool responses. Yeah. Bumpy bucks for everyone on mic. Including Vince. Hey, no! <laughs> so, and, uh... Our poll question for, for next week. Wait, we have a new one. Yes, a whole brand new one. How do we do it? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I, just I really just don't, don't know. know. I truly <laughs> Get don't. on with it. Uh, so sorry, sorry. Uh, what movie cameo by a movie star or other famous figure caught you most by surprise or was the most fun? Cool. And how can they answer? Oh, we're going to wait Ooh. on that. Yes, yes we are. Because now we have some trivialities. The show. So, Time Bandits. Budget, $5 million. Okay. Yeah. Worldwide gross, $42 million. Really? Yeah. It, uh, I mean, that's not a blockbuster, but it made, it made money. Wow. Yeah. This was, in fact, the 10th most popular movie of 1981 at U.S. and Canadian box offices. It was? <laughs> yeah, which is hard to believe because I don't remember it getting a terribly wide distribution. Must have been. No, we know it's not a bad year for films. Weird. No. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Apparently, Terry Gilliam came up with the idea for the movie in 1979. He wanted to do a whole movie from a kid's point of view. The problem was he felt he needed to give the protagonist child a group of people of similar height around him because he thought a kid couldn't carry an entire movie. He combined those thoughts with the concept of committing crimes with time travel, making it possible to get away with thievery because it hadn't happened yet. Interesting. Okay. 
Uh, in the original script, and this was how it was written before anybody was cast, King Agamemnon is described thusly. The warrior took off his helmet, revealing someone that looks exactly like Sean Connery <laughs> or an actor of equal but cheaper stature. <laughs> so he didn't think he would get Sean Connery. He wanted someone who would look like Sean Connery. To his amazement, the script ended up in Connery's hands and he was interested. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, heck, if you'll do Zardoz, you'll do anything. <laughs> yeah, well. Uh, Ruth Gordon was originally going to be cast as Mrs. Ogre. See, I actually thought was it was her at first. Oh, no, that was Catherine Helmond. Uh, Ruth Gordon was injured before production, oh. probably skydiving or something. <laughs> and Catherine Helmond was originally supposed to be all heavily made up. But she suggested it would be funnier if Mrs. Ogre just looked like a normal person. And... Terry Gilliam, who, by the way, was not just the director, he was also the writer and one of the producers, he agreed. Hmm. Uh, one, of, one of, of course, the standouts is David Rappaport hmm. as Randall. According to Terry Gilliam, David Rappaport believed he got the part for his acting ability alone, without size being a contributing factor. Oh. Yeah, as a result, he didn't really socialize with his co-stars. Oh. During the invisible barrier scene, now this is, again, this is according to Gilliam. During the invisible barrier scene when all the others get really hacked off at Randall and start beating him up, that's actually the actors expressing their frustration with David Rappaport. Oh, dear. They were actually hitting him. Oh, dear. Well, let's just keep nope. that film, shall we? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no studio wanted to make this movie. So the executive producers, Dennis O'Brien and some, I don't know, busker musician named George Harrison? Mm-hmm. Mortgaged their office building in Cadigan Square to raise the five million to make it. Huh. He made his money back. Yeah. So this is like the this is like when uh, I think George Harrison was the one who financed uh, Life of Brian. I believe he was. Uh, while filming the sequence in Sherwood uh, in Sherwood Forest, when the Time Bandits fall out of the sky and crash into the coach and land on Michael Palin and Shelley Duvall, Harry Gilliam he built scaffolding for the actors to jump off. While he was directing the scene, Gilliam was telling them, "Okay, you got to jump off. I'm going to." Sh- land around Palin and Duval don't actually fall on them. To better illustrate what he meant, he climbed up to the top of the scaffold, jumped off, and landed right on top of Shelley Duval. Ah. Yeah. I, I, I'm amazed, because Shelley Duval is a very fragile, slight <laughs> woman, let's just say. She weighs about 11 pounds, and Terry Gilliam is not a small man. Mm. So I, I, apparently she wasn't too badly hurt. Oh, that's good. Sir Ralph Richardson. Mm. I don't know how they got him. I honestly do not. He took his role so seriously that he submitted his own red ink edits, complete with the message, God wouldn't say that. And he would know. I guess. I've only He's seen him been, in one movie. Now well, two. Yeah, a movie we talked about. Yeah, Dragon Slayer. See our previous yeah. episode on Dragon Slayer. Uh... Jonathan Price was offered the role of evil genius, you know, or just evil, but he'd been offered a movie called Loophole at the same time, and mm. uh, he's quoted as saying, Loophole paid twice as much as Time Bandits, so I went for Loophole because I needed the money. Mm. Now, Price got the lead in Gilliam's next movie, Brazil, and later recalled that any time he had to do anything difficult in Brazil, like hanging from wires or being strapped down in torture, Gilliam would lean over to him and say, this is for saying no. <laughs> yeah, I'd work for him again. Yeah. 
This was a weird one. I don't know how seriously to take this, but there is a book by a guy named Robert Hewison about Monty Python called Monty Python, The Case Against Irreverence, Scurrility, Profanity, Vilification, and Licentious Abuse. He describes the dwarves in the movie as commentary on the Python troupe. Fidget, the nice one, is supposed to represent Michael Palin. Randall, the self-appointed leader, represents John Cleese. Strutter, the acerbic one, represents Eric Idle. Og, the quiet one, represents Graham Chapman. Apparently, I didn't notice Og drinking all the time. Oh. Wally, Wally, the noisy rebel, represents Terry, Gilli- Terry Jones. I like this. Vermin, the nasty, filth-loving one, represents Terry Gilliam. <laughs> okay. Oh, Dennis, there's some lovely filth down here. Ooh, Something oh, like me. that. Uh, in 1996, Terry Gilliam and Charge McEwen, I don't know sure if I'm pronouncing this right, McEwen, collaborated on a script for Time Bandits 2, bringing back most of the original cast except for David Rappaport and Tiny Ross, who had died a few years earlier. Jack Purvis, who plays uh, Wally, he had been paralyzed in a car accident, oh. so his character was written to be in a similar state. Unfortunately, Purvis died soon after, and the project was shelved. Hmm. Uh, Terry Gilliam laughed so hard while shooting the table scene with Sir Ian Holm as Napoleon Bonaparte that he had to leave the set to avoid ruining any of the takes. Huh. That was Ian Holm as Napoleon, Bilbo Baggins <laughs> as the Emperor of France. Or Ash. <laughs> the, the executive producer, George Harrison, who was part of some group called The Bottles or something, mm. was frustrated with Terry Gilliam's stubbornness. And you can find out in the lyrics of the song Dream Away, which is at the end of the movie, where Harris, Harrison once told Gilliam he reminded him of John Lennon because he was so difficult and, quote, bullshit. Ah. It w- and it was the thing Gilliam was most proud of that Harrison ever said to him. Hmm. Uh, a lot of the camera angles are very low all the way throughout. and Gilliam did that intentionally to give the perspective of a dwarf or a child. When the giant who's wearing the, the uh, ship as the hat comes out of the sea, it steps on a hut. If you look really closely, the creature that he's yelling in there is the butler elephant creature from Find the Fish in <laughs> Meaning of Life yep. from 1983. I would like to point out a one historical inaccuracy. They're making a big Just deal. Just one. <laughs> well, there's one very, because it's one of the few real specifics. They may, they're talking about how Napoleon is five foot one. Which is not Napoleon true. probably, and this again, you know, nobody measured it, but most sources say he was five six. Which, by the way, in the mid-19th century was about average male height. I also think all of the heights he lists are, shall we say, made up. Yeah, probably. I don't think anyone wrote those down, and they'd have been in, I don't know, cubits or something. (laughs) Uh, Executive producer Dennis O'Brien was against the ending of Kevin's parents blowing up. Oops, spoiler. And and Terry Gilliam had to fight to keep it in the movie. O'Brien was only convinced that the the violent ending could stay in after an advanced screening of the movie was held for an audience full of children. The first child who was asked what his favorite moment of the movie was excitedly proclaimed, The parents being blown up! Huh? And this oh. kid went on to become Ted Bundy. No, um... <laughs> we will, yeah. We'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah, that was his favorite part, watching the parents blow up. Okay. Uh, two other minor things. If we all recognize Fidget, of course, as R2-D2. Of course we recognize him. <laughs> <as>. <laughs> and, uh... 
When we see the animated supreme being, that is not in any way Ralph Richardson. That's not his face, that's not his voice. The face is some character actor named Edward Finn. The voice is Tony Jay, who is a British voice actor, probably best known from some Disney films. He's the voice of Frollo in uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and the voice of Dr. Dark from Beauty and the Beast, who I'm sure you remember vividly. Um, yeah, he's a, no one ever says his name. He's the guy who runs the madhouse that Gaston wants Maurice put into. Ah. Uh, yeah. He, I never knew until I read this that he had a name. And if I can add, ah. Uh, there's plenty of other stuff because it's a Terry Gilliam movie and there's always stuff going on behind the scenes, but I think that'll do it for now. Yeah, I should think so. And now, the fun part. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Shut up. <laughs> Young Kevin's a good 11-year-old English lad, even though if he does prefer reading to telly. One night his sleep is disrupted by an armored knight crashing through his bedroom and then vanishing. This being England, he doesn't bother to tell anyone. This sort of thing probably happens all the time. <laughs> the next night he runs into six dwarves, not seven, no copyright infringement, who also end up in his bedroom. These men have stolen a map of the universe from their former boss, the Supreme Being, which details all of the holes in time and space, like you do. Kevin ends up accompanying them on their journey to use the map to steal treasures throughout history. On the way, they encounter Napoleon, Robin Hood, King Agamemnon, an ogre and his wife, and the Titanic, for some reason, <laughs> as well as a remarkable selection of British actors. All the while, they are unknowingly being observed and stalked by the evil genius, evil given form, who wants to steal the map and remake the world in the most evil way possible, involving digital watches and VCRs. Such evil! <laughs> Can Kevin and his friends save the map and foil evil himself? Does any of this really happen, or is it all a dream? Well, it's a Terry Gilliam film, so your guess is as good as ours. Down. It's all part of growing up and being British. British. Um, yeah, the cast. I had seen this. Wow. It, I didn't see it when it came out, but I had seen it at some point in either a, a science fiction film marathon or in the heart, the long lamented Harvard Square Theater. Um, uh, I had totally forgotten who was in this movie. I could. Did you recognize the game show host at the beginning and the end? He seemed familiar, but I couldn't place him. That's Jim Broadbent. Oh, God. The owner of the Moulin Rouge and, of course, more recently, Professor Slughorn from the Harry Potter movies. Cripes. No, I mean, I, yeah. it's like, ah, that fits yeah. familiar, but... Major British character actor. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, who shows up? I mean, David Warner. David Warner's always oh. a good bit of fun. <laughs> Although he's all about technology, and I'm like, aren't you the bad guy in Tron? Yes. Sure. <laughs> well, he will yes. be. This is sort of like yes. presages his his yeah. role of evil in technology, I guess. Um, 43 species of parrots. <laughs> Nipples for men. <laughs> The things he's criticizing about reality. Yeah. Um, and, of course, uh, suddenly there's Sean Connery. And I'm like, what is Sean Connery doing here? <laughs> like, that was yeah. my note. What is Sean Connery doing here? Um, uh, at one point, giving us good view of little Sean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but And he's uh, he looks like he's having a decent time. Sure. Yeah. And he's Sir Sean. I, so, you know, King Agamemnon, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Did you did you have any idea who um, Winston the Ogre was? No. 
That's a guy, an actor, a British character actor named Peter Vaughn, who you might remember as Master Amon of the Night's Watch. I might. The blind, the blind maester from uh, uh, Game of Thrones. Oh, I don't remember, but thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Shelley Duvall, also, why are you here? <laughs> yeah, especially, she's one of the only Americans in this movie. I, mean, I think she's the only American, but she's one of the only non-Brits. I was going to say, is there other Americans? I don't think... There's a, no, there's an Australian, and there's someone else from the, the British Isles. Oh. Uh, not from the British Isles, but yeah, otherwise it's almost entirely uh, Brits. Which is interesting, because Gilliam himself is, in fact, American, but whatever. Yeah. He's the only Python who wasn't British. Um yeah, I mean, it's got a very interesting cast. Uh, honestly, I think David Rappaport does great. You know, yeah, I think, he I, think does he was, have, I thought he was. I think he does have good acting ability. I didn't actually think. I mean, uh, so we have a bunch of little people. They never make little people jokes, which is good. I'm always glad yeah. when they don't do that, and I I can understand. Well, they, they don't. Do. They don't. How long? How long have you been a robber? Uh, four foot one. Right, but that's just him getting the, the question wrong. That's not a joke about, oh, let's make him walk under a door, like, you know, nah. uh, oh, okay. Terror of Tiny mean. Town or something like that. <laughs> right. Um, and and I the other one, Jack Purvis, who gets more lines. I think he's Wally. Yeah. Um, he's actually, they're all good actors. I, I had no problem yeah. with the acting at all. Um, the kid Kevin um, was adequate. He was fine. He, Although, he didn't really go on to do anything. What kind of dumb name is Kevin for a hero? Christ. <laughs> well, uh, his mates call him Kev. <laughs> yeah, we should do that one at some point. That's a deep Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. He's fine. Um, otherwise, I, I actually, Sir Ralph, I don't think he put as much into his part as I've in the only other movie I've seen him in, which is Dragon Slayer, because there's points oh, where I swear he's looking off at the cue cards. Oh, I thought he was just playing it really well, really understated. I really like the idea of God as, in effect, sort of bored with everything and just utterly un impossible to surprise. He felt very Douglas Adams-ish, his character. It's, yeah, it would be, yeah. Terry Gilliam and Douglas Adams, I think they had a lot in common in, in their sensibilities, except, you know, Douglas Adams didn't insist everything be filthy. Yeah, um... And we have, like, a couple of other pythons in here. We do. I remember, the thing that I always remembered when I first saw it was John Cleese as Robin Hood. <laughs> oh, and very I, good. Very, uh, very, very good. <laughs> uh, so poor. Have you met them? Yes. Haven't got two pennies to rub together, but that's because they're poor. Oh! <laughs> oh! <laughs> I found out, I, I did a little checking. I had no idea. But... John Cleese based that performance on Prince Edward, the the guy who abdicated, who was briefly King Edward, who, uh, one who abdicated the throne for uh, Wallace Sims, and like scenes of him greeting common people. Oh dear, that's apparently yeah, he says, as, as, so, so, you, you, you won't do this. Oh, jolly good. <laughs> he was exa apparently exactly like that. I remember the comedian Eddie Izzard talking about. It's really like that when the royals meet anyone. You know, you've got uh, Prince Charles meeting the folks, just ordinary blokes, and like, and there, so, 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 you're a plumber, are you? What on earth is that? <laughs> so, well, it's always uh, good to keep busy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and Michael Palin, who shows up twice. Yeah, I mean, my, one of my first notes was, when is a Monty Python movie not a Monty <laughs> Python movie? And this is that movie because it's very. Python. I actually felt that there was a lot of 
um, parallels, especially when they were in medieval. Welcome to medieval times. Um, <laughs> that felt a lot like Holy Grail. Certainly the filth. <laughs> yeah, he had to have one scene where it's just disgusting and people are spitting and ripping off and there are severed arms lying around. Yeah. Um, but it's not a, a Monty Python movie. Only when the no. Pythons are there are it. Like, the John Cleese is... is Pythoning himself or about, and that's what he does, and it's fine. And the five minutes we have of Robin Hood are funny. Um, mm. And then when Michael Palin's there, he's he he doesn't get really get much to do. Mostly he's like, oh, hope you don't mind this thing at the end of my nose. Oh dear, no, no, no. Yeah, I mean it's, it's the same scene twice for reasons <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> so it's like briefly it's a Monty Python movie, but then very much it's kind of not because it's not meant to be a comedy, really. But, I mean, who wants to see John Cleese or Michael Palin in a serious role? <laughs> you know, what's the point of that? Sure, right? Yep. Um, I was excited, though, in the early part where we're in uh, young Kevin's bedroom, uh, suddenly a robot toy turns itself on. I'm like, ooh, I have that one. <laughs> I was looking at that and thinking, wait, that's out of Close Encounters. Yeah, well. I'm sure, I think that might have been like a, a little homage to it. Maybe, except it doesn't really have any bearing on anything. Um, no, but that's the idea. It's like, oh, but that means nothing. It's actually these guys coming out of the out of the uh, wardrobe. Well, okay, and here's the, I have a question for you because the film starts more or less with Kevin going to bed and suddenly this knight leaping out of the the wardrobe and through the opposite wall. Yeah. What was that about? Uh, there apparently one of the holes in time and space is in Kevin's wardrobe. But then they don't. I don't go, know why. Oh. It, we don't know why it hasn't uh, appeared before. We, that ties into the, one of the themes of the movie, which is how much of it is real. Yeah, we'll get to that. It's, yeah, yeah, we will. But uh, yeah, no, that's a strange moment. It's very Terry Gilliam because it starts off very mundane. Mom and dad just staring at TV. They got plastic on the furniture. <laughs> All they're interested in is their appliances. Well, now the plastic on the furniture, like that, used to be a joke. I actually knew people who did that. But so of course, did I. the plastic shows up again in the layer of Doctor Evil, right? Because there's all these things covered in plastic. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, yep. But this film, so this is, I think, Terry Gilliam's first sort of film on his own, without really being a Python film, right? Nope. Second one. What was the His first first, first was Jabberwocky. Oh, right, 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 right. Um, I, again, I saw that once a long time ago. I remember none of it. But um, Terry Gilliam has this kind of flavor, um, yeah. this style, and he basically starts with it. Like, I, there's no working up to telling Terry Gilliam's style. It's just right there from the beginning. Yep, and this we film, jump right in with both feet. Yeah, this film feels very much like him. Yeah. Um, and for we'll see if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, part of me also felt that this was ends up sort of being a backwards Bill and Ted, right? Because it's mm. not entirely... I mean, it, I, whatever. They, obviously, it can't come from Bill and Ted because Bill and Ted haven't shown up yet. But Or <laughs> did they? <laughs> um, but we're going back through different points in time, although in this case, we're just trying to steal things, which... Seems rather um, inefficient, but okay. Well, um, I don't know. If you, if you think of it in small terms, sure, you go back and you steal ancient treasures, who's going to prosecute you for it? Well, but they don't seem to have any plan as to what to do with it or where to That's go with thing. it. That's the thing. Where do they live? What are they going to spend it on? I did, did, gonna, don't know. <laughs> we'd never find out. Are they going to like pick a particular time and just stay there with all the money? We don't know. They're also not very good at holding on to it. 
They really aren't. They're not good thieves. They're very bad at it. As we, you know, and we kind of find out there's a reason for it. Yeah. I thought it was fun that they. one of the things they stole was the uh, Mona Lisa, although yeah. they were nowhere near it. So well, The idea was, I guess, Napoleon had stolen it, but I still like that well, they bring that back didn't. to medieval times like it's a great treasure. It hadn't been painted yet. Right, so They would cares? just look at it and go, what the hell? What the, who's, who's, the, who's the guy with the funny expression? Yeah, plus all of these gold, solid gold goodies um, yeah. that looked suspiciously brass, but whatever. <laughs> well. Um, yeah. It's it's uh it's an interesting um question I had just you know again why what are they doing like really you have the power to do this and you're you're not very good at execution are you I guess uh, I guess uh, I suppose not No um, it's funny most of their capers are incredibly clumsy Yeah the one that isn't is the when they take Kevin away from Agamemnon in Mycenae Right that's a surprisingly well executed Yeah which is sad because, of course, Kevin doesn't want to leave because he's finally got somebody who seems to like him, which will tie into the ending, which we'll get to. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Makes me wonder if there. You did in your in your trivia hunt. You didn't find out if there was an uh, a an alternate ending like there was for Brazil, did you? No, there no. are a couple of extra scenes with Agamemnon, but there's no alternate ending. Hmm. Ag- Agamemnon, who will in fact end up being a fireman. <laughs> Well, I mean, the other problem is, quite honestly, it was probably good they rescued, they took Kevin away, considering what happens to Agamemnon. Uh, remind our audience, because of course yeah. I remember everything about Agamemnon. Who he I... gets he gets murdered by his wife, and so do all of his like anybody close to him, his servants, or and probably would have been Kevin too. Well, I quite ne- I kept waiting for that to happen. Yeah, actually, it should have. Well, if you go by the the the, you know. Sophocles or, or the Oresteia, it should have already happened because he gets killed the minute he gets back from uh, the Trojan War. Oh, but, but who? Knows? I don't know if that actually happened. That's just in the in the play. I don't. Maybe it was different in real life. But he didn't kill the Minotaur, did he? No, he did not. That was Theseus. That's what I thought. And by, by the way, if that Minotaur head looks familiar, and there's a sentence I never <laughs> thought I'd say. <laughs> wait, wait, wait! Don't tell me. Is it the Bruno Kirby Memorial Fat Suit? <laughs> No, of course not. <laughs> oh well, I thought that, it might be. It's, no, it actually shows up in the movie in Russell Crowe's movie Gladiator. The actual head? The actual Minotaur head. Yeah, somebody's oh. wearing the same mask. I mean, it's not supposed to be a real Minotaur. It's just there. There's a scene where they're fighting guys who are made up to look like animals. Ah, huh. Interesting. I'm surprised yeah. it's still around. It looked like it wasn't I going was to be su- around much longer during yeah, this movie. Yeah, it did not look like it was particularly in, in good shape, and no. it hung on for almost twenty years. Yeah. Um, I will say this about the film, and part of this is I think we're going to see a lot over our series of 1981 because it was a long time ago and things were different then. But the pacing on this film is rather slow. It's leisurely, yeah, but I I never felt slow. It did to me. Um, especially at the end, there's this battle scene where they face the ultimate evil. And it's not entirely unlike any given Hong Kong action film where <laughs> you've got the the bad guy or the good guy, depending, and a whole bunch of people surround him who only attack them one at a time. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> it's like, well, we've got this spaceship, and we've got a tank, and we've got these Grecian ar- the, uh, archers, and we have some cowboys. Okay, you cowboys start first, and we'll wait. Yeah, we'll just sit here and watch, and then you guys shoot arrows at him, and I'll sit here with my tank and not do anything. Yeah, 
it was yeah just, that was a little silly and it just kind of took a long time um there's also parts of the film that i'm just like why are we here so we get to the part with the boat and the ogre which is not really a point in history but okay well, it's the time of legends yeah <laughs> the mists of legendary <laughs> I didn't. I feel there was something they cut out there because they. Kevin's like, he talks like he's heard of it. Yeah. The time of legends. It's not a real thing. But like, yes, we just have to believe. Wait, when did that come into the story? I gotta believe. Um, another deeper. So we get to this point where this boat and this ogre and the scene really just doesn't go anywhere. Like it doesn't really have any yeah. purpose. It's it's just, just an obstacle. I guess, and then it's like. It's it's flavor, I guess, or Gilliam's love of weirdness. Let's be weird. Yeah, I mean, it's very Gilliam. I mean, the whole thing with the giant, by the way, he was a, guy, a professional wrestler named Ian Muir, oh. who was, it turns out is wearing the boat as a hat. And he ha I like that he has the tattoos on the side of his head that make it look like they're straps for the hat. Yeah. Although but I, that's just like, okay, this is like one of the animated sequences in Monty Python, just weird for the sake of weird. Yeah, if you've never seen any of Gilliam's actual films, but you've seen some Monty Python, any of the animated bits were done by Gilliam, and quite honestly, yeah. Max is right. His films yeah. feel a lot like those animated bits, except they really, stretched. Yeah, they really do. It's like, ah, now I have a budget to express my vision. I don't care if no one else understands. Yeah, and I, I am... I was very surprised when you told me, like, I wasn't surprised when you told me how much it cost. Although there are parts of this movie that look really expensive. Yeah. Some of the battle scenes and stuff, it's like, they're blowing stuff up and there's a lot of guys out there. And that's, you know, that's not cheap. Um, as is often the case with Gilliam films, though, you start to feel areas where the money might have been running out. And one of those hey. areas was the Titanic, which was the fakest oh. looking set in the oh, whole movie. Boy. Um, yeah, that was like, oh, good thing we found this set floating in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's just paint Titanic on it and no one will ever know. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was, a that was you get the feeling, kind of shoehorned in a little bit. There is some cool but, imagery in this film, though. Some stuff yeah. that I actually liked. Like, in the near-the-end fight scene, he's uh, the evil bad guy, who's basically the evil bad guy, um, yeah. is trying to stop the little people and Kevin... Boy, what a dumb name for a character. Um, <laughs> running away, and there are these really neat, I don't know what to call them, these sort of... Oh, the minions with the cow skulls the cow skull and skull the hooks? spirits. Yeah, that was almost yeah. like Studio Ghibli kind of stuff. That was, they were surprisingly creepy, given how goofy his other henchmen were. Yeah. Those guys were nightmare fuel. Well, also when they shot those uh, Roman candles out of their eyes, it's like... That's really kind of neat. I like that. That's very effective. And it's yeah. I mean, obviously some guys in flowing robes with a cow skull in their head and stilts probably and Roman candles. But it was I thought that was actually very cool. The idea of the guy with the boat on the head is pretty cool and is certainly part of, the, I think, the, one of the posters. Because I definitely remember that part. Yeah. Um, a lot of it's just sort of historical. Um, it's like, oh, here we are in ancient Greece. Yeah. Good thing everyone speaks English. Just yeah, now. everyone speaks English in France, Italy, ancient Greece, medieval English. In England, they're speaking modern English. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things that sort of argues that this may, may have been a dream, although there's the ending. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, we will. Um, it's... He's a hard director to follow. He doesn't really like the mainstream. 
Um, he bucks against a lot of Hollywood trends, which, of course, doesn't make him any friends. He's apparently kind of hard to work with. At least that's what I've heard. Yeah, I've heard that, too. Um, and I don't know if you've seen the... I think you did see the film, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Yeah, I did. Visually, is a very interesting film. And I think yeah. like, it's probably the most Gilliam-looking film he did. Yep. Did you like it? <sighs> Now, to be fair, I only saw it once, and I saw it when <laughs> yeah. it came out in the theater, like uh -huh. you're supposed to. And I remember thinking it was really interesting. I don't know that I liked it. Um, I haven't seen it in 40 years, so that's probably a sign. Um, the film of his I probably like best, and I don't know how much that's saying. I did see this a few years ago, having not seen it since it came out, which was The Fisher King, which is arguably his most mainstream film. Yeah, it's a, it's a really depressing one, but yeah. Yeah, and it's not all that mainstream either. No. And I think he got into a lot of trouble for that, because I think that like somehow they hired him to do this film, or they, you know, some big uh, distribution company, I don't know if it was Fox or whomever, gave him money to do it, and it ended up not being what they thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting, and it certainly was an interesting role for Robin Williams and, um, oh my God. Was, it Jeff, was that Jeff Bridges? I think it was Jeff Bridges, okay. yeah. It's hard to tell, because I don't think he had a beard in that one, and it's almost yeah. like, you know, other... Like John Reese Davies, does he? I don't. Does he ever do anything without a beard? I hope not. Um, I saw. Remember. It's like I saw Magnum once without a mustache. It's like, wow. Okay, put some clothes on, dude. What's going on? <laughs> uh, so yeah, he's he's a difficult director, I think, to follow. He's Brazil. a challenging director. Yeah, boy, there's Brazil a happy a, film. <laughs> that again, that is a film. It's one of those films I think is brilliant. It's amazingly well done. The cinematography is incredible. Direction incredible. I don't want to watch it again. Yeah. It's it, it's one of those movies that's almost painful. Well, now it's did, so dark and so unpleasant. When you saw it, did you see it with the quote unquote happy ending? <laughs> I saw both. Ver I've seen it twice, and I saw both versions. Yeah, I only saw the unhappy ending, which is the one he wanted you to see. That was at a science yeah. fiction film uh, marathon. I was like, um, I'm going to go out to get some pizza and cry now. <laughs> yeah, uh, not, yeah, not a happy film. I didn't remember a lot of this film. Um, I know I saw it. I just don't remember a lot of it. And that's actually kind of a theme with Terry Gilliam films because I end up, I don't know yeah. about you, but I tend up not wanting to see them often or necessarily yeah. ever again. Uh, did you remember a lot from this film? I did. Oh, but okay. I've seen this movie several times. Oh, okay. Beca and oddly enough, this movie I, I, sticks out in my mind, particularly for Gilliam movies, because the dialogue... Da Gilliam's movies to me are never really about the language or about jokes. Mm -hmm. This movie is funny. There are moments in it. Some we've people have been quoting it for years, <laughs> even if they don't always know it's from there. You mean me? <laughs> yeah, no, not just you. I still remember. I always liked uh, Robert. Dear Robert, you are so mercifully free from the <laughs> ravages of intelligence. Oh, thank you, Master. Was that Benson? Um, ben, uh, maybe it was Benson. Like, we can make beans into peas. <laughs> what? Yeah, stinking Kevin. Stinking Look, Kevin. Kevin. <laughs> That's the thing. David Warner is is a great, he, he is such a great bad guy, and he is such so great. He'll just like, uh, he can play it restrained, or he can leave teeth marks on the whole set. Yeah. But he's not usually funny. And he is funny at times in this, you know? 
blows somebody up? Good question. <laughs> I do. I did expect him at some point to just go, why do I surround myself with idiots? Because <laughs> um, he does. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's he's enjoyable. Um, David Warner usually brings something to his roles. Uh, I don't. He was in uh, one of the Star Trek films, wasn't he? Yes. Uh, oh boy, I don't remember him. Nope, I can't remember which yeah. one. Yeah, it was that Star Trek film with the guy in it. Okay. <laughs> um, he's done a ton of stuff. I mean, I still like him as Jack the Ripper in Time After Time. I never saw Time After Time. After Time. After Time. Hey, David Warner versus Malcolm McDowell. That is really, Uh-oh. that is a sight to see. Yeah. In an iron cage. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I'd see that. Who can out-English the other? <laughs> yes, you know, uh, time is the fire in which we all burn. Um, that was it. It was Star- It was Undiscovered Country. Star Trek Six, I think. Okay. You know, the one I was just quoting was Generations, but that, that was Malcolm McDowell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have... Uh, we have some questions. Before we get to that, I have an extra question um, that yeah. you kind of touched on in your uh, trivia, or is it your trivia? Yeah, your trivia. Okay. Um, in your estimation, Max, yeah, who is this movie for? That's a really good question. <laughs> I don't know. It's packaged sort of like it's for children, but there's an awful lot of death in this and yeah. a lot of scary-ass imagery. I don't know. I honestly figured it was for Monty Python fans or, you know, nerds. Yeah. You know, people like me. I thought it was just uh, people who like a uh, fantasy film, but I uh, but the protagonist is a child. Yeah. And he, he's surrounded by little people because it's all supposed to be from a child's perspective and at a child's level. I don't really know. I don't know that about a lot of Terry Gilliam movies. Do, do you happen to know the original rating of this film? It was PG. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised uh, at that, but it's like, again, uh, would you take kids to it? I don't... I don't... I, I didn't have a problem. With, I mean, the violence to me wasn't really that bad. The blowing up part, okay. They blow up a dog, which... <laughs> that's usually uh, a big no-no in Hollywood. Yeah. And it was done for laughs... But my problem is, I don't think kids would get it. Because I'm I not sure be confused, I got it. Apparently they liked the parents blowing up. Yeah, which is... I, I'm not sure, but like, one of the characters, Fidget, dies. I mean, he comes back, but it's hard, you know, he's crushed to death. And what do we get in one of the first scenes with Napoleon? Firing squads. Right. We see them shooting people. Yeah. I, it's remarkably violent for if you want to think of it as a kid's film. Well, I don't think that the presence of children necessarily means that it's a children's film. But when you decide to design the film around, especially visually, both with camera angles and with hiring actors of lesser stature, um, it feels like you're kind to try, trying to kind of appeal to either... I mean... I suppose the film could have been made for little people. That doesn't make sense. Um, I don't know either. And I think that that's one of the problems with the film is it's not really sure what its audience is. I very much appreciate that they don't make fun of the little people for their height. Again, there's no jokes of them walking under things or people going, you can't do that. You're too short. Ha ha. This one thing where Napoleon's talking about how short people have done wonderful things throughout the year of the war, the eons. All yeah, of it's seem- putting them all to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> They're all bored. And of course, we never see Ian Holmes stand up because he's not really that short. He's not actually five, six. I don't think. Yeah, but, uh, 
But I I don't know either, and I think it's a problem because mm. if you're not making it for kids, the the humor level especially is not really for kids. No. But but uh, there's also the story is very much a children's story. Yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, we have a magic map, and we're going to run around and have adventures, and eventually, I, I have in my notes, uh, does it really sound like a good idea to rob a place called the Fortress of Ultimate Darkness? And I wrote, oh, God, they're adventurers. <laughs> it is. It's like a, like a D&D party. Oh, that sounds good. Let's go get the treasure. But, well, uh, and we'd never find out what that object is that they're going after. We never it, see it, it doesn't exist. The evil made it up. He, oh. he planted the idea in Og's head. Oh. I mean, it looks like they, when it's presented, it's clearly a kitchen set. But <laughs> well, but then they have it on the map, so I don't know. That felt to yeah, me like Randall one of those... is seeing what he wants to see. I guess he, he just believes it. Yeah. Mm. Um, we have our little uh, talking points. If you'd like yeah, to get to those, sure. Was this film a standout for the year 1981? I think this is a two-edged question because you you had some information in trivia that would suggest yeah, it kind of was. was the number ten movie and. Let's face it, it was distinctive. Yeah. It wasn't like anything else. I think that it was kind of groundbreaking in a lot of ways. I think it is a standout financially. Um, it certainly, that surprised me, because yeah. generally Terry Gilliam films don't tend to do very well um, mm. historically. So that was, that was a surprise. Um, I don't remember... In nineteen, like I remember Indy Jones being a thing. I don't remember Time Bandit. Like I don't remember previews for it. I don't remember. I would have been in high school, so I think people went. I don't think I went. So it's interesting to find out that it did stand out. Tenth yeah. film. Wow. Did this film significantly affect films that came after it? Huh. You know, I think it did. I think some of the look and the fantasy elements affected other fantasy films, such as. Labyrinth. Okay. Boy, there's uh, a big leap in time. And maybe, uh, what's that, that horrible Tom Cruise one? Legend. Oh, Legend. God. I think there's a little of that. Um, yeah, I think it did. I think it... Uh, and then there were all the spate of time travel movies that came out. I, uh, the time travel in this... I mean, it, but it is, is. Time it's visiting travel. different. It's a lot of time travel. It's visiting different eras, and as we talked about during our our, our time travel series, see our entire time travel series. This film doesn't try to address anything about paradox or how the or the fact that they are not just interfering with the past but mucking it up completely. They're just stealing things. Yeah, <laughs> quite honestly, the probably the most realistic use for time travel, except. <laughs> save my loved one who shouldn't have died boo yeah, yeah yeah i think it, this film significantly affects other terry gilliam films mostly i think that that's where it goes um i don't know if i could draw a particular parallel to labyrinth maybe a little bit um that's henson uh i i'd say in general i would say no I would say there might be a little bit of people who go, that was kind of cool, let's do it. But in general, I would say no. Um, not like Indy okay, Jones right. did. I'll agree to disagree. That's cool. Let's see other. Yeah. Does this movie reflect 1981? Uh, that's actually really hard to say because this is Terry Gilliam, and Terry Gilliam reflects Terry Gilliam. Yeah. 
I, I don't I don't think so. I don't think there's anything particularly eighties about this. I think the only thing that's eighties about it is the sequences with the parents or with the little game show that shows up back up at the end. And yeah, I'm, but is that really eighties? I mean that could be seventies. Well here's the problem, it's Britain, 60s. so we can't you and I probably yeah, don't that's know. That's true. That's true. So yeah. you know, those things may have been specific comments. You know, they were talking about they didn't even have the internet yet. Boy, would he probably go off on that. But the the digital watches i mean that shows up in uh hitchhiker's guide right oh think true watches are pretty and i mean and of course kevin has one of those polaroid landex cameras that was an xs sx70 and at one point i actually you know how people people shoot guns in films and you start counting bullets i started counting photos like you only get 10 photos in a pack of those so kid uh, he might have had an extra pack in his bag He, he kevin did clearly think ahead a lot yeah, that's true. Um, I it, that's the only part you might say had anything to do with eighty one. I don't think there's yeah. anything in the film of the fantasy parts or the historical parts that are meant to reflect politics or anything. Yeah, of the I time. think it, it's supposed to be. I think a little timeless. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I have run out of notes. Pretty well, much. Have do you got to talk else? about the end? Do you want to talk about the ending? Let's talk about the ending before we get to. Yeah, the, the wrap-up. <laughs> because, first of all, this is, again, very Terry Gilliam. Yeah. Where we are, Kevin wakes up back in bed, his house is on fire, and, you know, maybe it was all a dream. And we get a lot of things to emphasize this. The fact that at the Fortress of Ultimate Darkness, he sees his parents right. as, as the game show presenters or whatever. And when the firemen are carrying him out and they're stomping on his toys on the floor... The toys represent, you know, there's cowboy toys and archer toys and a tank. It's what they were dealing with. Right. And they take about it. It's like, oh, yes, it was all a dream. And except the fireman who's taking him out is friggin' Sean Connery, who winks at him. And two other things that kind of, re- he has photographs. Right. The pictures he took are still in his bag, including a picture of the map. Oh, yeah. And his parents touch a chunk of concentrated evil and explode. <laughs> and that's, that's, okay. I, and nobody bats an eye at this, by the way. All the neighbors are watching and everyone's just like, ooh, nothing. <laughs> oh, nothing. mother, people explode every day. <laughs> I feel really bad for Kevin at this point. It's like, okay, he's an orphan and now he's homeless and they've just gone off and left him. Yeah, there is... Like, I mean, I start to wonder if Gilliam would then, like, oh, you thought that was sad? Whoo, yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. And that Ben yeah. Brazil showed up. Yeah. Um, I, to me, that is kind of a weakness of the story because I think you should commit to one or the other. But he loves doing that. I know he does. He, Kerry Gilliam is the king of ambi- ambiguous endings. He friggin' loves it. Brazil, it's... Uh, it's this, it's, what was the one I was just thinking? Uh, Baron Munchausen. It's a bunch of them. He just loves that. Did this happen, or was it all a story? But it's such a downer. Because mm-hmm. no matter what, if it really happened, it didn't really happen, the kid's parents, and he, whom he didn't apparently like, they didn't seem evil. They just seemed basically suburban disinterested. They were, yeah, just, yeah, they were just neglectful. Don't make and, noise. Um, yeah. But then, like, there's no... Hint, like he doesn't pull the photo of the map out and get a gleam in his eye or anything. He's literally oh. just standing there in the He's ruins horrified. of his home. Yeah. And it's like, the end! And there's a happy George Harrison song. And yeah. 
I kept like I I went all the way through the credits like oh maybe there's a little something and there's like no no <laughs> there's nothing. nothing so I don't you can have ambig ambiguous endings one of my favorite authors yeah. whose name is Jonathan Carroll uh, ah. often has endings that feel like you just read a pre prologue to another bigger story and that's where he leaves you and he can do it and it works fine leaving them wanting more is an old vaudeville term and it it's a great way to get to keep people on a sort of an upswing at the end of your story this doesn't do that this just makes you go what yeah it's kind of a slap in the face it's like what and again Gilliam loves to do that. He loves to subvert expectations, and some people think that's brilliant, and some maybe it is. I but, think it's well, lazy. We'll talk about well, we'll talk about what we think of it next. Yeah. Well, in general, I think that's yeah. it's kind of lazy storytelling. But besides that, I am out of notes. The notes yep. that I pulled from the mists of legendary. <laughs> oh, the only other thing is I like when uh, evil is frozen in, into the black shape. I have written, and suddenly evil is frozen in carbonite. <laughs> Carbonite. That's right, spot maker. <laughs> kind of looks that way. Uh, right, so we should get to yeah. the roundup. The roundup. So, Max. Yeah. Did you see it actually when it came out? I did. I think I saw it at the uh, Nickelodeon. Okay. And do you rem I know it's a long time ago. Do you remember your feelings at the time? I remember thinking it looked really cool, and I liked it up until the end. <laughs> okay. The end. I don't like, I'll tell you right now, this is a personal thing. I really don't like ambiguous endings. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's lazy or not. It's a matter of personal taste. I don't like it. I like, I, uh, I like a narrative that has a fairly solid conclusion. I don't mind if it's open-ended. Mm -hmm. I don't mind if you could lean into something. I didn't, everything doesn't have to be wrapped up, but I'd like to have some idea of what happened. So you said you've seen it a number of times since then. Yeah. Like just to watch, or has it been yep, like... Just, well, like a movie marathon, or... Ah. Yeah. Okay. It's not really something that if it's on, I'll watch, but uh, I've shown it... I've wanted to show it to other people. Mm -hmm. And now you obviously watched it specifically yep. for this show. Yeah. So what are your feelings now? I think it holds up in that I feel pretty much the same way about it. Yeah. I like, I like a lot of the parts. I just don't like it as a whole. Mm -hmm. I, I think there are segments in it that are hilarious. I think some of it looks amazing and really cool, especially for the time. I think the acting is first rate. Even the kid, the kid is okay. I he's mean, he's, he's not giving he's not giving a lot to do, but he's not just some cute, annoying kid. I like that they play him for his intelligence and his curiosity. And everyone else is terrific. They're you know funny and moving and 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 engaging and you care about what happens to these characters some of which have almost no lines especially of the of the robbers and but you just sit there going again i'm going who is this for and what the hell is with the ending mm. you know i like parts of it i i still would recommend it to people especially if you're fans of terry gilliam and you haven't seen his early work this is a real interesting one because like mike said you can see where his other ones came from. Yeah. What about you? You said you didn't see it when it came out. You I saw did not. it later. Like yeah. I want to say that I saw it either at the Harvard Square or as part of a movie marathon, you know, one of the science fiction film marathons. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have a lot of reaction to it. Now, to be fair, if it was at the science fiction film marathon, it might have been two in the morning, which might have yeah, said a lot. Yeah. To, you know, that's that that happens. Um and I literally remembered almost nothing. 
So when I came to this, I almost came to it cold. Um, the only thing that I knew that was not that kept me from being utterly frozen, haha, is that it's Terry Gilliam, and it's like, okay, well, I know weirdness is gonna come, and there, I swear, there's points in the film where he doesn't quite know what he's going to be doing, so he's just like, well, make it strange. Okay, that's that's fine. Um, I'm not gonna recommend it. Um, I don't think it's a particularly well-told story. I think it's very <laughs> uneven. I think it's a film that if you happen to f be flipping channels, and I don't know what station would be showing this, <laughs> you would not be drawn in to want to watch it. I don't think there's any point to this that you would sit there for more than a couple of minutes and go, wow, I want to, oh, what's happening? It doesn't really grab me. There are parts where, I was, again, like, what is Sean Connery doing here in a dress, in a miniskirt? Okay. Um, and he's, you know, he's fine. But the only time we get to see anything that feels like we might be getting some sort of character development or real conflict besides the end of the film is when the kid, Kevin, finally seems happy. He's like, hey, I'm going to be adopted by Agamemnon. Okay, spoiler, yeah. it's not going to be happy for very long. He doesn't no. know that. But then the 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 troop comes and steals him back away, and he's really upset. Of course, he's really upset on the deck of the Titanic. Titanic yes. <laughs> um, but after that, they basically just go on to the same relationships that they had before. There's no more delving into, you know, his feelings about this or his feelings about his parents. Like, we don't explore that at all. You know, there's this moment where we could have Kevin, he's, he says, like, why did you take me? Why did you take me away? I was happy there. And then the ship sinks, and then we never talk about it again. Yeah. So we don't know. Well, they don't really have time. Everything just keeps happening so fast. They have a map. They have all the time, all the time in the world. Uh -huh. um, so I, I, I don't, the ambiguous ending too, I'm not buying it. I think it's lazy. It's a way of him not committing to something. And I don't think that in this particular case, it's an ambiguous ending that works. So maybe his commitment to ambiguity is he was committed to that. It just doesn't, it's not skillfully done. I don't think it's also like, why would you want to watch a film knowing that the main character who's a kid is going to be orphaned at the end of it. And mm. literally everybody on screen is going to walk away from him. Now you there's could something say, to that. But oh, he's got a picture of the map. If he can learn to read, it. I got to tell you, it's a Polaroid. The details sucks. Um, does that mean we're supposed to think on our own that, oh, well, he's got a map, he's now can do whatever? I, I don't know. What, what doesn't mean anything? He didn't show any interest in doing that anyway. He's a history nerd. Cool. Well, he's, no, no, he says you have something really brilliant like this map and you're wasting it. Meaning, it suggested to me he would have had better ideas of what to do with it. But we don't ever see him do them. or We don't know. No. Again, ambiguous. So what I they think... I, so, I'm not going to go with That's a thumbs it. down. Okay. Yeah, I just, I don't... I appreciate Terry Gilliam as an auteur, somebody who's really trying to pursue their vision. And I think he's, that's one of the reasons he's hard to work with is because apparently he's very uncompromising on it. And I honestly don't think there's enough of that. I think there's too much of the committee and the bigwigs and people, do, you know, basically study groups and stuff like that. Or, it's more of a risk when you put all the decisions in one person's hand, but that's also when you get some of the genius movements. And I'm going to say I'm glad that it was made. I just don't know that I would recommend it to other people. Okay. So, 
But uh, we have poll question stuff, if you would go over that, please, Max. Sure. Uh, poll question for this week is, what cameo uh, by a movie star or other famous figure caught you most by surprise or was the most fun? And you can answer that in many, many different ways. More ways than there are stars in the heavens, which means three. <laughs> so, there are only three. They just all reflect. Uh, a one, a two, it's, a three. It's science. Three. You can, of course, go to our website, maxmikemovies.com, and leave a comment. You can email us for extra bumpy bucks at us at maxmikemovies.com. You can answer us on the Book of Faces or the Twit of Errs under <laughs> at maxmikemovies. Uh, or you can tie them to a duck. <laughs> That's four. Because it'd be interesting. <laughs> How very Gilliam-esque of you. I uh, think so. And of course, you're probably listening to us on one of the podcast apps of your choice. And if you're Indeed, not... Indeed, would you... Uh, uh, please donate because you stole it. No, 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 we don't make money yeah. on this. So that pretty much brings us to the end. But before we go, yeah, Mike, what are we watching next week? A movie! Yeah. So, 1981. Oh, no, that's just what they'll be expecting. <laughs> they. <laughs> As if we have more than one listener. Uh, <laughs> next we week's listener, Zangief's ass. It's been a long time <laughs> since that one. All right. So, uh, I wanted to pick a film uh, that I hadn't seen before. Uh, it's a film that I'd heard a lot about, but never seen, um, starring somebody that will surprise you. Um, it's a movie about, uh, actually, I have no idea what it's about, um, but uh, it shows up a lot in best of lists and you won't believe how good this movie is list, criterion collection lists. Um, it is, in fact, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang 2. No. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the Wrath, the wrath of, of the Baron. Bang. <laughs> yeah leave me in a junkyard will you no it is in fact i think in his first starring role in a major motion picture john travolta but where where why in blowout a brian de palma film i believe I it's check. a musical I, thought saturday night, I think saturday night fever came out before uh, 1981 Oh yeah, it did. So it did. So it's it is a surprise role though, because I think it's a suspense film. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It's usually listed as a thriller or something. I think a tire blows out. So yeah, I think it's a, I, I think it's actually about a, a road accident. Yeah. So if you would like to join us to watch a tire blowout, make sure to tune in next week to Max Mike Movies Blowout. Catch it. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench.